WBZ original. That's a true story, by the way, though, when I told Lisa yesterday, we were just sitting next to each other and we were talking about the gingerbread house. And I was like, by the way, if you guys win, I am going to smash your gingerbread house. And she was like, oh, you don't, you wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I think Lisa she was kidding. Slam your neck like it's a pixie stick. You understand that, don't you? <laughs> All right, here we are, mid-December. We mm. are at episode 15 of season two. Welcome oh, into... Oh, oh, everyone. We're so jolly here. <laughs> Welcome to Studio BZ. That was the voice of John Keller. I'm Paula Evans. The beautiful ho-ho-ho, John. You Thank you. sold it. I believed it 100%. The Santas are all Jewish. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And happy Hanukkah to you as Thank well. You so very it is much. now over. I'm Leah Martin, John Keller, Paula Evans. Mm. Lots to talk about we this are. week. What's up yeah. on the show? Hey. Uh, paging all women and all men who love women. That yes. should cover just about everyone, right? Um, this For this week's show, we spoke with an expert on equal pay. Remember that? The concept that a woman who does the same job as a man should make the same? Huh? Well, there's been some progress, but let's call it incremental. Katie Donovan, who was one of the key movers behind a key equal pay law that passed in Massachusetts just a couple of years ago, is going to talk about what happened there, what's happening now, has the Me Too movement helped push pay equity forward, everything you ever wanted to know about equal pay and where we're at with it coming up. Love it. Speaking of equal pay, uh, we have a really interesting interview I did with a woman named Sandy Paradise. She is a Merrimack, New Hampshire native. Is that a real name, she Paula? That's her real name. And Lighting designers always have stage right. names. Little do people know that she has been the person right there every single step of the way with Lin-Manuel Miranda during mm. this entire journey of the smash Broadway musical hit Hamilton. And I talked to her because she is also going with him and the entire team to Puerto Rico for his special three-week performance of Hamilton to raise money for the arts on Puerto Rico after the island was devastated by last year's hurricane. And, of course, Alexander Hamilton. That's right. Of course. And I was absent from the podcast last week because I was in Washington, D.C. to cover the funeral for President George H.W. Bush. We're going to talk about that trip, what it's like to be the local reporter working down in D.C., and... My favorite segment of this podcast, the Gingerbread House competition here at WBZ. It it's been is intense. fierce. It is tense. Uh, there are There's allegations spying. of spying. Actually, not no. even allegations. There has no. been spying. There, that's the thing. When people admit to it, you well, can't even really. Not only make did it he admit to it, we caught him on camera. So we're going to get into the Gingerbread House competition. Mm-hmm. It's yep. the anchor teams all against one another. Allegedly, all in good fun. No, hey, can't no, we all good. just get along? <laughs> not when it comes to gingerbread. Not when it comes to right. crafts. We take these things seriously. Liam has seen a side of me, John, that <laughs> I'm not sure he knew was there. Well, I knew it from our apple pie debate. Well, true. I did this see it there. We all knew it was there. The intensity <laughs> came out. <laughs> So, Liam, you went to D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, who came out ahead? You were D.C. <laughs> I came out ahead, I think. Okay. Tell it us was, about it. It was a very quick trip. We went down to cover the funeral for President George H.W. Bush. I went down with our photographer, Tom Matteo. And it was one of those things where flew in Tuesday at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, drove right to the CBS News Path location, which is just a few blocks from the Capitol itself, did live coverage all Tuesday night, woke up Wednesday, 
did live coverage all day Wednesday and uh, flew home Wednesday night. So it was really in and out. I've lived in D.C. two times, so I knew a fair amount about the city already. But I will say it was there was a there was a different atmosphere uh, for this funeral, for the services going on throughout that week. It was a very there was it was reverent. It was quiet. Wednesday, of course, was a national day of mourning. And so there weren't as you know, lots of federal workers, of course, in D.C. There, it was quiet. People were not really walking around much. I think it was another one of those moments where people were kind of taken aback that there's this realization that it is the end of an era. Well, especially that moment when Bob Dole, who had been a political rival of George mm-hmm. H.W. Bush's, showed up at the Capitol Rotunda and was barely able to get out of his wheelchair and saluted the casket of George H.W. Bush. That was, as you're saying, a moment when the country realizes, boy, this generation is, is really passing. Yeah, the greatest generation. I yeah. wonder how much of the attention, which frankly I was, I have to say, pleasantly surprised by how much respect was shown and mm-hmm. attention shown. You know, we live in a culture where, you know, George H.W. Bush, who's that? You know, uh, All but, the way back uh, to the 90s. And yeah. from your interviews uh, uh, that you d- did while you were down there, uh, Liam, it, uh, the the level of, of thought that people were putting into this and the, the way they were appreciating the experience I thought was very moving. And I thought it was a moment for the country to – even young people who weren't alive during his presidency or during his time as vice president, whatever it might be, to see how the adults in their lives treated the passing of this man and what it was about his life that they respected. And it was his decency and his humility his and his, uh, his work to be as bipartisan as he could. Yeah, and his his devotion to his family. And I think it was really important for young people who might not have even known his name really before this happened to see, oh, that is why he's being respected in this time. And I think especially in the context in which we're living right now, the political age in which we're living right now, George H.W. Bush seems a very far throw from that. And also that those are the things people talk about when you die. That, you know, people weren't getting into the deep analysis of his Gulf War policy or whatever. It was the the big boulders that sort of held up his life. It always strikes me when you mention that Bob Dole moment, when you think about the fact when these men were children, Civil War veterans were still alive. Mm. Uh, you know, and at many Veterans Day and Memorial Day events and – uh Boy, this really is a big passage of time. The best moment I had down there was interviewing this couple from Maine. They live in Kennebunkport. They moved in in 2004. The wife was out working on the pool filter one day. They had moved in not long before. An SUV, dark-colored SUV, pulls up. George H.W. Bush in the back. Window rolls down. And he says, welcome to the neighborhood. Love what you did with the house. Come on over to the point And... We want to have you for a celebration, little neighborhood get together. And they became such close friends over the next 14 years that they were invited to the state funeral in Washington, D.C. last week. And talking with them about what that meant to them when they got the invitation and, of course, just what their time with George H.W. Bush meant to them was very, very touching to see what this man meant to a lot of Americans. So here we are, 2018, on the cusp of 2019. We've had the Me Too movement, record number of women elected to Congress. Everything's coming up roses for female equality in our society, right? Wrong. The pay gap between what men and women in comparable jobs make is actually getting worse 
up just slightly, but up measurably in the past 10 years. Women overall make 80 cents on the dollar of what men make. Black women, 62 and a half cents. Hispanic women, barely more than half on the dollar of what men make. And our guest, Katie Donovan of Equal Pay Negotiations, LLC, is devoting her professional life to rectifying those inequalities. I always love it that this comes as a surprise to a lot of men, that this Mm. pay gap exists. But of course, this all comes down to pregnancy. This is the mommy tax. I'm not so sure this will ever be rectified. Well, you know, as you'll hear in the interview, uh, Katie Donovan certainly grasps those macro issues and that we talk about exactly what you raised there, Paula. But she's also uh, gets into the fine details in a way I found fascinating. It, this is the kind of thing that's going on at the forefront of this battle. That, then, is the way the WDA's Department works. So, Katie, before you became an expert on equal pay and the issues surrounding it, what were you doing? Well, my background does include working for a staffing firm and working for an applicant tracking company. So I was working with companies in their hiring departments from small nonprofits to global Fortune 500s and really learning the basics of hiring, which so it fell right into when I saw there was this problem. It's like, hey, I could help. Do you remember the first time you really became aware of this? I had dinner with a group of friends from Holy Cross where I went for undergrad, and a woman that week had just discovered she was paid 30000 less and this was in STEM. For the same job. Exact same job for a gentleman that she actually showed the ropes to. So that just triggered it, and I didn't want my nieces having the same conversation mid-career in their lives. Did you ever get the short end of the salary stick? I'm sure I did. You just never know. So you head up to Beacon Hill looking to bar employers from asking about salary history and print their salary ranges? Well, long before that step, it's making a lot of friends with a lot of advocacy groups working with um, MassNow. We actually got the Equal Pay Coalition to grow to about 40 organizations to support it. So it's a big voice is needed to get that. How was your passage through Beacon Hill? Who'd you have carrying the ball for you up there? We had a lot of good people. Uh, Representative Livingstone, Representative Story were our two House sponsors. And in the Senate side, we had Senator um, Spilker and Senator Jalen. So they helped immensely. Of course, Karen Spoke is now the Senate president. Yes, we had a power broker there. (laughs) Um, Did you get everything you wanted, half a loaf? Well, as I teach people in negotiation, you never get everything. (laughs) So we did not get jobs, advertisements, including the pay. Um, I haven't given up on that. We'll be back in a few years on that, hopefully. We did get for the salary ban. It's actually a restriction where prior to the offer, Employers cannot know it after the offer. They can if, I mean, basically their concern was what if everyone comes back and says like, oh, I was making 100 more than that, how dare you? They want proof that you were making 100 more than that. Um, We have great coverage that the pay of men cannot be decreased to create equality. You know, which, believe it or not, only 25 states have that. So there are states that they 
can cut your pay to make it like, no, we're paying everyone the same, which is actually the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. How would you describe the level or intensity, if any, of the opposition to what you were trying to do? Where did it come from? Here in Massachusetts, actually, early on, even before the bills were filed, we started talking to the business community. It was a very different mode than what had been happening before. And we like to think it's, it's actually a mode that a lot of other states are asking us about to f- copy that model, get all the stakeholders at the table and work out something that's working for both for everyone. So we had the Alliance for Business Leaders was an early supporter of the bill. When Boston, Greater Boston um, Chamber of Commerce came in as a supporter, that Definitely moved, that definitely moved the uh, needle big time, and we also got the Association of um, Industrial Manufacturers. AIM. AIM. Yes. <laughs> How about some of the more conservative groups, Mass Business Roundtable, Mass High Tech Council? We did not get those. Yeah. Um, a lot of groups stayed neutral. So if an employer... Uh, you're a woman, you go in for a job interview, and the employer insists on knowing what you were making. Uh, What's the penalty? And what's a woman to do? You don't want to turn your job interview into a a screaming legal argument. Well, one, you just learned a lot about the company and do you really want to work there? So so have the interview, give them what they're asked, and then go call the attorney general's office the second you get to your car and report them. And the attorney general's office will take care of the rest. Have there been, these are fines, I guess. Yes, and and I I think even before fines, there'll be conversations to make sure they're aware. Because it is a new law. It just went into effect in July of this year. What else is in the equal pay law that women should know about that's now their right under that law? They can talk about what they pay, what they are paid with their, their co-workers. So if I am employed by... John company John and start talking at the lunchroom with my colleagues and somehow pay comes up the company cannot force me not to talk about it I myself in my career have signed salary confidentiality agreements it actually if I ever talked about my pay it would be reason to fire me Um, they cannot do that anymore those are illegal across the board they cannot have them. You have to be able to talk about your pay, and we don't have any stipulation about why you're talking about it. That's also critical. The federal law has a stipulation that it's about kind of unionizing or, or making sure the whole group is paid appropriately. This can just be talking about the weather and, oh, I make 50 grand. Does that really matter? Because my experience has been that's a, a, a piece of information that people are very reluctant to share for their own reasons, setting aside whether or not they've signed a, a non-disclosure agreement. It is an awkward conversation, but research shows having the ability to talk about it, one, lets the employer know these people may be talking about it, so they're going to be a little more mindful of making sure any gaps are smaller, and it has been shown to close the gap by 3%. But also, if you do talk about it, I always recommend talk bigger picture. Oh, I saw a report on, and it says sales reps are making X, and then kind of go to specifics. Don't just, hey, Bob, what are you making? 
It's not, no one's going to tell you. So, you know, here we are on the cusp of 2019. We've had the Me Too movement in the past year. We've had, I believe, a record number of women elected to Congress uh, uh, in the last year, in just the last couple of months. Uh, we've seen over the last several years uh, uh, women breaking through the, the glass ceiling in, in a number of different areas. Uh, and yet you told me earlier when we were chatting, the numbers really haven't budged when you're talking about pay inequity and promotional inequity. Correct. What is going on? I, I truly believe it's um, people are very excited about implementing new programs and projects. Um, a lot of the solutions are fixing women, which really isn't a solution, but thanks for thinking of that. Uh, because you'll see a lot, we have a women's network and we'll teach them how to act like men. Well, that's not the idea here. Um, it is really looking, I focus primarily on procedure. It's boring, nuts and bolts. How do you go from needing a person to do X in your company to the day they decide to leave your company or you decide they should leave, that they have been treated fairly throughout the process? And there are so many things in every process of hiring and promotion and compensation decision-making that assumes everyone in the world is already being treated perfectly. And it's that assumption that is hurting the ability of achieving it. So whether it's using previous pay, it, my favorite one is that 85% of employers, according to the Society of Human Resource Management, targets median pay when they make an offer. Well, the definition of the What do you mean by that? So that is 50% of people doing that job are either making under that number or over that number. So it's truly right in the middle. And it sounds innocuous. It sounds like a good idea until you go back to what a pay gap is. So for the gender pay gap, it's all women working full time. Their median pay is... 20% lower than all men doing that job working full-time. So if I'm targeting median pay of both men and women, mathematically, it's impossible for that to be the same as what men are earning at median rate. And that's our goal. So we're not even aiming for the goal. Let me kind of give a, um, a story to tie it to so people can connect to it. When I took golf lessons, not that I golf anymore, but when I took golf lessons, and was taught how to putt. I was taught aim for beyond the hole, because if you aim for the hole, you're never gonna get it. Here in equal pay world, we're not even aiming for the hole. We're aiming for five feet before it. So how are we ever gonna achieve it? We need, and I once was on a panel a few years back with this gentleman who's been working in HR for years. He was talking about back in the day when there was a women's pay scale and a men's pay scale. We need the men's pay scale, because that's truly, it's the non-biased standard we're trying to achieve, and we don't have the data out there for every HR department in the world. That's what we need to, to know where we're going. Is that a feasible goal? Why not? I we mean, have that's, that's probably the most closely held proprietary information any company has what they pay their workers. I can go on the internet now, and I don't want to call out any company, so I'll just say, and if I do a search for TV anchor, <laughs> and the word salary, I will have 
millions of results. I can put it by Boston. I can put it by big market, little market. I can cut and paste it a million ways. These, there are many companies, and even every job board has some salary calculator. They have databases. We get them free as people out on the streets, just regular staff. But companies, employers, are actually paying good bucks to get that databases. And these organizations they're paying to find it have the data. I'm just saying get rid of the, the women, the people of color, the people with disabilities, every group that statistically is underpaid. And really, the non-biased standard are white guys? Give me that. How aggressively are women discriminated against because they're um, approaching childbearing age, young married women? Or they're women with young children and the employer's thinking either, oh, she's going to go out on maternity leave, it's going to cost me an arm and a leg, or, oh, she's got the young kid, she's going to be punching and sick, I won't be able to rely on her. Well, you don't hear about it straightforward from employers. Of course not. They know they can't talk about it and they shouldn't. And if they're playing statistics, 80% of women by the time they hit menopause have given birth. I mean, it's, you know, if I'm a gambler, I'm going to play the odds. So that's in play even for the 20% of women who never plan on ever having children. Plus, you think of all the caregiving women in general tend to give. I'm at an age where it's parents. You know, um, you're taking care of parents. You're taking, I'm taking care of elderly uncles. You know, like there's all these other people that are, can't come into play. But here in Massachusetts, we have leave for child, family and, and child care, and it's not just women. Men can take it too. So if you're concerned about the women leaving to have, take care of your kids, you also should be concerned about the men who have children. Where are we headed now? We have some major legal battles going on as we're taping this. The Supreme Court's prepared to announce whether or not they're going to take on a California case where a woman won a, a, a significant uh, a battle over being paid less than a male counterpart for the same work. Uh, you have the Nike case that made a lot of headlines. Um, and we have, uh, again, you know, the, this Me Too era, uh, supposedly uh, society's outlook on women's issues and awareness is being heightened. Are we entering a golden age for the issues you're focused on, or are you putting up the flashing yellow light here in terms of expectations? We're entering an educational age. I wouldn't call it the golden age. Until two years ago, probably most of the guys on the streets would have said everything's cool. And even today, Me Too is made up. Um, equal pay issues are made up. You see that every day. So it's educating and explaining why um, under the Me Too world, uh, Neil... Degrassi Tyson has an issue on Me Too, and he doesn't think it's a problem for him to just grab a woman's dress and look underneath it to see a tattoo. I'm sorry, that is a Me Too moment. Yeah. If we have to explain that, we're, we have to explain that. So we're really still at the very base, foundational side, trying to explain things to men who don't see it. You re and, and it's not 
your fault you don't see it. You're, you're looking at the world from a lens that doesn't experience these things. So we have to continue to, one, help the people who aren't experiencing it see it, and two, make sure we aren't just getting um, managed by, but we're part of the management. So with the hope of seeing more women in Congress and more women here in Massachusetts state legislature and more women fighting and scraping and getting into power, it will help the conversations move quicker. In any kind of social change of this magnitude, uh, I suppose you want some combination of carrot and stick. What are the limits, if there are any, of the ability of litigation and legislation to move this movement forward? Well, I'm glad you mentioned carrot and stick. Here in Massachusetts, the Equal Pay Act included a carrot. Not, it, it's not just all sticks. It really isn't. There's an enticement or um, for companies to actually do their own audit and find out because a lot like, hey, we have no pay gap here. I don't know what you speak of. But if they do an audit, they then have extra protection for if they are ever sued. But they have to actually stop making progress because right now what we find is most places employers will not do an audit because they're scared that like a sales force who, once they did the audit, they threw $3 million into their payroll to fix it. And then every year they have to throw another $3 million, so the foundation hasn't been addressed there. But most employers don't have the money instantly there to fix it. So with the Massachusetts law, it's like, find out what your problem is, start working towards fixing it, and we will actually help you during that process. We will not hurt you. And those types of carrots included in legislature is important. Let me close with, with this. As we've seen in the reaction to the Me Too movement, a lot of men feel threatened by that. What's in it for them to get with the program? Well, for employers, there actually is research showing that the more diverse your leadership team is, so it's not just women, I mean, people with disabilities, people from the LGBTQ community. I mean, really. People of color. People of color, everyone. You need to have diversity because that's your clientele. Those are your customers. And if you understand them better, you're more profitable. And I think your stockholders would benefit from ha being, having you more profitable. So if you're trying to take care of not only your employees and your customers and your stockholders, you better start welcoming more people up to the top. If people want to find out more about this topic and what you do, how can they do it? You can come visit me on the internet at equalpaynegotiations.com. Katie Donovan, Equal Pay Negotiations, LLC. Thank you for joining us on Studio BC. Thank you, John. It's possible now with new programs the next interview coming up, uh, it, it just struck me, is with a lovely woman whose name is Sandy Paradise, which sounds like a description of Puerto Rico, right? It's a Sandy mm, Paradise. That's true, it is. Uh, Sandy is a young woman from Merrimack, New Hampshire, who's had a fascinating career on Broadway in lighting design and execution. She runs the spotlight at Hamilton for the actor who plays Alexander Hamilton. So, of course, she's been with Lin-Manuel Miranda since the blockbuster musical moved from the public to the Richard Rogers Theater. And she talks about what it's been like to be a behind-the-scenes observer of this whole juggernaut. 
how gracious he is to people on the technical side of Broadway, which she says is highly unusual. Oh, by the way, very smart of him to— Very smart. Be kind to the woman running his spotlight. Well, yes, but <laughs> you know, she but, says. I mean, I'm good, good most, to be kind in general. In but. most Broadway casts, the talent, as they say, might not even know what the spotlight operator's name is. <laughs> Never mind, interact <laughs> with them. And as the creator, he's created a real family. He always includes all of the technical people. Everyone on that cast and crew is involved in every birthday cake, every celebration, everything. But she said to him, when you go to Puerto Rico, because he's raising money for hurricane relief and to help fund the arts on the island, she said, I want to be there. Now, this, uh, these performances in Puerto Rico, this will be uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's first time back in the lead role since yes. Broadway, right? Of course, he did the uh, tryout at the Public Playhouse and then the first year on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater and left, went off to do a little thing called Mary Poppins Returns, which he <laughs> is doing the publicity for this week. Yeah. Um, and so when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico and devastated the island, we know we've talked to David Begno about about just the horrible devastation, and he and Lynn have a relationship going back and forth about the island. He decided the best way to raise money for his parents' home was to go back and perform as Alexander Hamilton for a three-week run. They renovated the theater at the University of Puerto Rico at San Juan and built a theater for Hamilton. They're going to sell tickets that will cost rich people thousands of dollars a piece, which is just the way he wants it, to raise money for the arts and culture to continue on the island. But he's going to make tickets available for Puerto Rico residents for $10 a piece. And Sandy Paradise is going to go along. She'll be there by New Year's weekend preparing to light him and uh, be part of the company that puts on Hamilton PR. How are you, by the way? I'm good. How are you? The Hamilton Christmas party was fun, I take it. Of course. I mean, like, <laughs> what Christmas party doesn't have a DJ? Oh, wait. Only it's Hamilton. So does Does Lynn always come? Um, we did not see him this week. He's, I think he's a little busy. Oh, he must be slammed with all the Poppins I promotion. Mean, I must admit, you win or, or, or you're given a Hollywood... Walk of Fame star, a Kennedy Center Honor Award, you know, a Golden Globe nomination all in the same week. <laughs> and we thought Hamilton was fun. Yeah. Oh, I know. You know, and, and he seems to have a good knack for scheduling all of these things. I have literally no idea how he does it because he still does occasionally like come flying through the theater. And it's pretty impressive because when he came flying through the theater the last time I said, Psst, I'll see you in Puerto Rico. And then on his way out, because he's always flying, like as fast as you possibly think a person can move, he said, paradise, I'll see you in paradise. (laughs) Oh, that is so, so perfect. So let's start out with that because my initial phone call to you was I was so excited when I heard that uh, because you've been his lighting person from the very beginning, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda called you and asked you to come to be his spotlight during Hamilton in Puerto Rico in January. How did that conversation go? Well, it's sort of not exactly how it went. Yeah. But um, since Lynn is like on the on the creative side, actor side of the show, like he doesn't usually 
He can do that with his personal dresser, but he doesn't sure. usually do that with other tech staff. Right. Um, but it's always obviously been a big joke of ours that if you can't see Lynn, if without me, you can't see Lynn. So we are one and the same when it comes to doing <laughs> Hamilton. Um, the interesting thing is that I went right to the production electrician and said, I heard you guys are going to Puerto Rico. I'd really like to go. <laughs> I think because you've been so, uh, you know, such an integral part of Hamilton world for the last three years since it all began. I mean, yep. it, it must be remarkable to think that the entire impetus for this a completely life-changing musical for Lin-Manuel Miranda was reading the Chernow biography of Hamilton, which begins explaining that the reason he left the Caribbean, the island of Nevis, was because of a hurricane in 1750-whatever. And now, and he never went back, even though he intended to, and, you know, the rest is history. And now Lin, whose family came from the Caribbean to New York, was able to mount this incredible piece of art and because of a hurricane is bringing the story of Alexander Hamilton back to the Caribbean, back to Puerto Rico. It's just really sort of a remarkable, remarkable remarkable story. It's just, it's impossible to even dream these things. I mean, after doing so many shows and you think, okay, Hamilton, like every day, it's like you turn the corner and there's something new with Hamilton happening or something with Lynn happening. And, and now we're going to take a show to Puerto Rico. And we had to think about all these other aspects of the show that we would normally wouldn't have thought of because we would come into a building that's a working theater. But no, in this building, we have to bring all those things because of a hurricane that destroyed everything. And all of the money raised from the show is going to go to support the arts there yep. in Puerto Rico and at the university specifically. Is that correct? Yep. Let me take you back a little bit, Sandy, because you grew up in Merrimack, New Hampshire. That's true. You are a huge Patriots, Red Sox, any New England sports fan. I know that. That is correct. Um, But but just briefly, talk a little bit about how you ended up a lighting designer on Broadway. Um, As a child, I was a dancer. So I did a lot of dance and dance recitals, a lot of ballet. And then in high school, I got a little bit more involved in the drama club. And it was just fun to be in that environment of people. And it's interesting because we as young ladies in New Hampshire back in the late 80s, early 90s, we didn't really, weren't giving the opportunity to do the tech side of things. And then when I got to college and they said, you need to pick your work study job. And they gave a list of things that would be your work study job. And it was, you know, dishwasher, person in the kitchen, librarian, you know. And uh, one of the things on the list was basically a stagehand. So I said, well, that sounds much better than washing dishes. So I'm going to check that box off. And I think pretty much the rest is history. What year was your first Broadway show? Oh, I I toured and did cruise ships before I actually moved full time mm, to New mm-hmm, York. Mm-hmm. Uh, really learning the craft. Yeah, learning the craft on the road. And then I did a lot of it on cruise ships. And then I finally moved to New York in the fall of 2002. You know, and I love the story about the fact that three years ago, you were actually working on the show with a big name lighting designer that was supposed to be the Broadway hit of that year, but it didn't turn out that way. Oh, Zhivago. So it was a musical version of Dr. Zhivago? It was a musical version of Dr. Zhivago, which I thought was... Beauty, like the pictures when Hal Binkley, the lighting designer, had the um, set design pictures, like uh, drawings and whatnot in a big book. When he showed it to me, it looked beautiful. 
And you all think, okay, Dr. Zhivago, I can see that. That will work. How long did Dr. Zhivago play before it closed? Uh, two weeks. And then what did he say to you? I, it was literally crazy. They said, Sandy, we want you to come do Hamilton. It was my, the production electrician. He says, Howell wants you to come do this. And I said, I know, but what about Zhivago? We thought Zhivago would at least run through the summer. They put a lot of money into that show. And then the next day we went to work and they were like, guys, we're sorry. Zhivago's closing next time. <laughs> you literally found out you got Hamilton the day before this show closed, which is incredible. And of course, you're you're in a building with actor, all these actors and stagehands and people who work in this building regularly who now who thought they were going to have this big time Broadway oh. show because it was supposed to be the big hit. And now they're told they have no work after basically next week. So the actors are crying. They're looking like, what what are we going to do for work now? And I'm trying not to be like, woo, yay. <laughs> this is like the greatest thing ever. And literally or, at that point, you didn't like, even have a grasp yet of no. how enormous Hamilton was going to become. No, rewind us for a second. We were in the shop, which is the lighting equipment shop. We were prepping the equipment for the musical Zhivago way back in January. And the other electrician said to me, Sandy, we really need to get on Hamilton. And I said, I think we should just worry about Zhivago right now. Should <laughs> <laughs> I know fast forward, not four months, five months. And all of a sudden I'm doing the biggest show on Broadway. And I didn't even realize it. I think my cousin was in town the week after we opened, and I think I got her standing room tickets, or mm-hmm. she came in, she was in the building, and she said, what is it like? And I said, I think it's going to be big? Like, question mark? <laughs> <laughs> you thought maybe it has a niche audience, right? Maybe it has a niche audience, I, but like, I did not see this coming, and I mm. don't know why, because the guy, even the guys, when they saw the show in rehearsal, the, the other two spotlight operators with me, came out of that rehearsal and said, this is the best show I've ever seen. And that's from two guys who are 60 some odd years old, kind of on the verge of retirement. So they've spent their whole careers and their whole lives doing this. From someone who has seen him up close working, you've had the best behind the scenes seat of anyone, I believe, (laughs) uh, to this entire phenomenon. What would you say it is about him that makes Lin-Manuel Miranda so special. I think he just views himself as a normal, everyday person. He is amazing in the fact that his brain works a million miles an hour, but you would think after winning all these awards that he would have that sort of aloof stature when he came in, and nothing has changed with him. You can say to him, how are you today? Like, what's going on? And he'll stop and talk to you or, and he won't give you like some other people who, when they gain too much celebrity status, it be, it's like a stature. And then they look at you like you're the little person. And Lynn has not changed like one iota. He is so grounded in, I am a Puerto Rican American who grew up in New York city and Puerto Rico is the home of my parents and my grandparents and my family. And I'm going to do everything to always stay true to that no matter what happens. Sandy Paradise, it's just so great to talk to you. And it's nice to know that little girl from Merrimack, New Hampshire, who was dancing her little heart out on the stage at her local theater is going to be part of such a tremendous opportunity in Puerto Rico and that you are our piece of New England always on Broadway. Yes, every day with my uh, Patriots water bottle walking up through the house. Uh 
uh, World Series winning Red Sox sweatshirt. Oh, those New Yorkers must hate that. It, I tell you almost every day there's at least one person in the audience that gives me the like stink eye. <laughs> That's great. And people can find you on Twitter as at Spotlight Sandy. That's correct. So they can kind of follow your pictures and follow your journey oh, to Puerto absolutely. Rico. And uh, best of luck. Break a leg with Hamilton PR, so as they're calling it. And uh, enjoy a magical experience. Thank you. Is your official title social media manager? My official title His is... His social media maven, maven. technically, is... Oh, I like that better. <laughs> My f- official title is Digital Content and Promotions Marketing Producer. <laughs> it's quite I like Stick it. with maven. I like it. Make it. <laughs> By the way, but, uh, Allison, Allison is... Allison Dodak has come to our newsroom and just... Made everything better. She is well known for answering all of my idiotic questions <laughs> about Allison. How do I copy someone else's Instagram onto mine? How do I do this? How do I do that? She's always got the answers. True. Huge Very addition creative. to the WVZ social media team. And then she came to us with this fabulous holiday idea yeah. for the three anchor teams to engage in a gingerbread house making competition. Mm-hmm. So Chris McKinnon and Kate Merrill. Liam and I, David Wade and Lisa Hughes, are making three different gingerbread houses, and the viewers are going to vote. Allison, is this a tradition in in your family circle? I have never made a gingerbread house in my life. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Very Uh, real fruitful line of inquiry by yours truly there. (laughs) My family is more about spinning dreidels and collecting chocolate gelt. But I've always seen gingerbread houses. And And they're visual. They're visual. They're cute. I mean, it's a bunch of candies. Who doesn't like candy around the holidays? I love everything to do with Christmas. I just love <laughs> Me too. I love Why Christmas music. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's great. So tell us, what's the competition, the, 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 the uh, genesis of this idea? So the whole idea was just to infuse a little friendly competition in the holidays and get all three anchor teams to create a Boston-themed gingerbread house. So everyone has picked something different. Everyone had their own supplies that they specifically wanted. And tomorrow we're releasing a nice full-length video on Facebook. And you guys, the audience, can vote. And we will see which anchor team has the best design. you said friendly competition. Have you been surprised by how unfriendly it has been? Because right out of the gates, we had a spying controversy. Paula and I were very diligently working on our beautiful, uh, brilliant gingerbread house and David Wade. Uh, happened to walk into the studio on purpose and start looking. And then he sprinted out of the room, which I, I didn't quite see him, but then I went to the video replay and it was David Wade sprinting out of the room. So have you been surprised by the level of competitiveness of the anchor teams? I appreciate the enthusiasm. <laughs> Very diplomatic. Enthusiasm. The spirit of George H.W. Bush, That's diplomat, right. lives on. I would say it hasn't become vicious yet. Yet. It, it's still a pretty yeah. friendly teasing. Well, all that, well I did tell Lisa that if, if they were to win... <laughs> I will smash her gingerbread house. Well, now and I'm, she didn't seem to know that I was kidding, <laughs> frankly, but wow. uh, maybe I'm not kidding. I don't know. Well, now I'm finding this unexpectedly interesting. Yes. What are the themes that you chose? Can we you can, talk we about can, it? We can reveal about it now. We right? can reveal because it now. Done? Okay. Yes, because they're done and, and, and they have to be done by well, some 
They have to be done in about an hour. Yeah, about right, an hour right. So, taping, and Paul's so. not, and, and so mine we're are down. down to the end. It's done. Liam and I, yeah. when Allie broached us with this idea, we're standing right there on Lansdowne Street in the shadow of Fenway Park for game two of the World Series. So we immediately looked at each other and said, our gingerbread house has to be the home of Boston sports. That's where every fan lives in their mind. So how did this manifest itself? Liam? We built a standard gingerbread house from a kit, but we turned it into the dream world for Boston sports fans. Yes. So it's got you know Bruins on the, on the mm-hmm. roof is Bruins, Bruin, Celtics, Patriots, Red Sox flags. The World Series trophy is going down the chimney. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, Paula used little gingerbread men and made a player from each of the teams. Each player is outside the house leaning up against a... Ice cream cone tree. Ice cream cone There's tree. There's a walkway with baseballs. But, but the big flourish. Oh, yes. And I will let Paula reveal the big flourish because it was her idea. And we think, Allie, that this should be the flourish that puts us over the top, but we're not sure at this point. But many years ago, I can't remember when, I watched Martha Stewart make a gingerbread house, cut out the windows, and light it from the inside. So Liam got a tool. He literally had goggles and a drill bit. <laughs> And a drill, because you can't crack the entire side of the gingerbread house. And he carved the windows out, and then we put puck lighting inside. We have a remote control. So you come up the walk of the house, all the sports-themed flags, and people are there, and it lights up from the inside. And it can light green, red, blue, and white. Allison, did management sign off on the anchors handling power tools? <laughs> I think it was encouraged. It was I think off the they bar. liked the um, the dedication that they showed. <laughs> the dedication, another diplomatic spent, word for it. We spent minutes. So it, we should house. say we did. We should say that Chris and Kate. We know because of the video that was released today built the Zakem Bridge with a garden in the background. Oh, great! And Which we have thoughts. We about have which is I'm that sure Leonard Zakem would be really touched. And you know, I think so. David and Lisa did the station. Oh, the WBZ station. Did WBZ as a gingerbread <clears throat> right. building, which of course is a beautiful, beautiful building. Here at WBZ, <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Lovely box. Box. Just yeah. a lovely box. Nineteen forties brutalism here. <laughs> we have decided. That's right. They, they have a brutalist. Here we go with the brutalism house. again. Uh, Liam and I are already preparing for the appeals process. Yes. In the event right. that Kate and Chris might be victorious, right. our argument will be that. Uh, the Zakem Bridge is not a gingerbread house. Yeah, they didn't build a house. So if the competition was to build a gingerbread house, yeah. they did not they, really fit criteria number right. one. Yeah, so they are disqualified. So that will be a problem. Uh, they cheated. We'll, we're ready to go toe-to-toe. Um, so, so how can people participate now? Well, this? Allie, take it away. Yeah. So we're going to put up still photos of the final gingerbread designs tomorrow on Instagram. So when you say tomorrow, you mean Wednesday, December 12th? Yes, Wednesday, December 12th, because it is National Gingerbread House Day. So what better way to celebrate? Uh, so we will have the final photos of all the designs up on Instagram at WBZTV. Yeah. So viewers can vote in the comment section. We are going to put a poll up on Twitter where you can also watch the whole video. And the whole video will also be on Facebook and you can vote in the comments there. Wow, fantastic. Uh, whom have you been most impressed by? Um, and, and realize that the others are not in the room. <laughs> Um, what, what Liam a is fishing a bit there. <laughs> you 
You said you had to run, didn't you? I do, actually. Yeah. I should probably get up. Allie yeah. actually does have another No, no, but no. She but which to get to. But poor Allie has been inundated with bags of candy and white hardening frosting all around yes. her desk area. And yeah. we commend you for supplying all of us with our supplies. Yeah. Well, thank you. Pa- never Paula wielded a glue gun. <laughs> I did. Uh, I, I have the scars of a hot glue she gun. She did actually burn her fingers. Show it. So when you think, folks listening to this podcast, <laughs> whom should I vote for? Should I vote for the team that spied? Should I vote for the team that didn't build a house? Or should I vote for the team that burned their fingers, used power tools, risked gingerbread shards in their eyes for this project? Think think hard about it. As you can see, the Christmas spirit is in full swing here at WBZ. Should we say for a minute that we're just kidding? I mean, we, Chris and Kate are very sporty and athletic and crafty. Okay. I know Chris in particular loves Christmas. Yeah. And Lisa and David have been <laughs> slaving away whenever they could, but they're good, their houses are going to be beautiful. Okay. To give a handicap to David and Lisa, <laughs> and I hope David's okay with this. Yes. They were building theirs, and David got violently sick yeah, with the stomach bug. he doesn't feel very well. While he was building it and had to leave. So he was so playing theirs, hurt. like, very well might not be even entirely finished. Um, but we'll see. But we'll see. As for you saying that we're kidding, I hope <laughs> you're not kidding. I'm not kidding. <laughs> this is something we learn, John, about Lee. Yeah. As time goes by. He's very, very beneath the jovial, placid oh. exterior. Yes, lies the heart, of, the heart of a madman, ruthless competitor who will rip your lungs yeah. out if given yeah. the opportunity. By the way, we won't get into the thick of it, but we had our last week. We had our whole thing about Paula beating me in fantasy. Yes, we are both now in the in the playoffs. Jonathan, we're in the playoffs. We both made the playoffs. Thank God, I don't play him. No. I play the eleven. Well, we producer. might play. We could play each other in the finals okay. if it well, comes to that. We'll see. Uh, and uh, that Jonathan's telling me to end it, but <laughs> but it, you know, Paula made it without ever looking at her team. That's true. It's amazing. She's, in, she's the, the number two story. seed. The number two seed. And nothing else. It's a highly skilled thing, fantasy football. <laughs> yeah. So give us a rating and a review. Subscribe and share. At Studio BZ Pod. I'm at Paula Eben WBZ. I am at Liam WBZ. And at Keller at Large. And thank you. Great show. And come next week, we'll, we'll be seeing you. Can I say, by the way, that this is not necessarily for the podcast, Paul and I have argued about this. Mary Poppins is terrifying. It is a terrifying movie. The new one looks even more terrifying than the original. She literally descends during a storm from the clouds with an umbrella and performs strange magic where she's in the mirror and then moves away and then she's still in the mirror. It's terrifying. Don't you see that in the storm and chaos of childhood where Mm -hmm. nothing is understood by small children, Mary Poppins is the personification of certainty and rules and order. And having self-confidence and feeling good about yourself, that is what her character represents to the child's mind. You can't put your adult thoughts and motivations. No, no, no. I thought Mary Poppins was terrifying when I was a child. (laughs) Mary Poppins was terrifying as a child. She literally descends from the clouds in a storm with an umbrella and does weird tricks with mirrors.